0: session with Dr. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Um, you can call in on Wednesday's show if you have any questions 310-441-0555 but won't be taking any questions tonight cuz I'm doing the show also on Instagram live you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook or to, to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify so let's get to the books of the week the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next monday's show is disability visibility uh, edited by alice wong disability visibility first person stories from the 21st century and uh, this book is a collection of essays from different individuals that help give some insights into the experience of individuals with disabilities so i'm very much looking forward to reading the show i saw this book on the twitter of Judith Human, who I read her memoir, Being Human, and that also led me to the um, documentary Crip Camp on Netflix. I highly recommend that if you haven't seen it already. But the book of the week for this week is Disability Visibility, edited by Alice Wong. Looking forward to reading it and sharing it with you on next Monday's show. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Why Trust Science by Naomi Oreskes, Why Trust Science. And so I got this book a few weeks ago and wanted to read it um, pretty quickly as far as um, not wait to make it a book of the week because I thought it was so important to read a book about science. Why should we trust science? When we see a lot of people talking about issues related to science, social media especially when it comes to things like the coronavirus about should we trust what the so-called experts are telling us Um, should we take a vaccine if one becomes available and you hear and see a lot of people that present various aspects of arguments in favor or support and so I thought it'd be important for us and my brother Parham he's also looked into this a lot related to things like conspiracy theories but uh, this concern he has which I also think is true this crisis we are in where it seems that we're not sure who to trust what is even the truth what does that even mean and should we trust the experts should we trust scientists when they tell us certain things so Naomi Oreskes is a scientist herself so I guess in a way that gives you a sense of her bias or where she's coming from but I thought she did a She does a very good job in this book. She's written a book called Merchants of Doubt related to how sometimes uh, scientists or certain individuals can try to, as the book's title says, obscure the truth on issues such as tobacco smoke or or global warming. And so she also talks a lot in the book about global warming, man-made climate change or the effect that humans and human activity has had on the climate And how it's unfortunate from her perspective that so many people don't believe it or that there's so much doubt when it comes to things like that. So the whole book started from a series of lectures she gave um, back in, I believe, 2016. And then what was interesting for me, the book, you know, it says Naomi Oreskes is the author. But there was a few chapters in the middle of the book that were written by other authors, other scientists essentially giving rebuttals to what she shared and so i'll I'll talk about how that plays into to the book itself so the book begins by looking at some of the early philosophers of science and it's interesting because when we think of the of science what is science how do you even define it and some people even will talk about the scientific method i remember learning about that when i was in school you know they presented to you things like you make um, hypotheses you make observations you then look at the data then you report your data things like that and we thought it was just one set method at least that's how it's often taught but as she explains in the book there really isn't one scientific method that has always been the same throughout history and so that can kind of beg the question, what do we mean by science or what even creates scientific experience or scientific knowledge? Uh, to begin with, one issue we have is when we're looking for truth with a capital T, very rarely can we really find that. Or really, we can say, how do we know something is the absolute truth? And the reality is we really don't know for sure. And this itself helps people create doubt or creates doubt in people's mind, but people also use this to create doubt because you can always say, well, how can you be sure? How can you be 100% sure that this is the truth? And also related to that, people will say, well, you know, scientists have been wrong before. So if they've been wrong before, how do we know they're not wrong this time? And there's no way to know for sure that scientists are right or wrong about something because even that's hard to say because what does the truth mean? Right now we might think something is correct, but we can't know for sure. But essentially that's what this book is looking at. Why should we trust or how should we trust science? And she doesn't say we should just blanket trust and blindly trust science as in anything experts say has to be 100% the truth. But she does say that there's good reason for us to have faith in or believe in what scientists are saying for some of the factors that she describes. She also discusses a few cases where scientists really got it wrong, or at least certain elements of the scientific community were wrong. For example, um, eugenics, which is essentially the concept that we should try to get rid of sort of weaker genes or people in the gene pool, which were usually... They would say things like criminals and other things, but usually it would be related to like race and other um, discriminatory type of categories, and that we should n- not uh, we should make the human race stronger by getting rid of and not letting certain people breathe, uh, breed, sorry, um, essentially breathe as well, but and making others breed more. And even in the United States, thousands of sterilizations, very often involuntarily and sometimes without even the, informing the individual were done in the name of eugenics, thinking that of somehow um, promoting the human race in some way or making us stronger. And so she points to this case and she shows that actually, even though we can think scientists were saying this, there were some scientists, many that did say this, but there was also many that were disagreeing with it as well. So this is one of the key components of science that she talks about is consensus. And of course there won't be perfect consensus almost ever, but when there is general consensus among a group of scientists in a field, that can make us more confident in what they are saying and what they're telling us. And so we should look for consensus. What are are people saying? And now when we even look at consensus, one thing to me that was fascinating was the concept of diversity in science or diversity of perspectives. And so she presents the varying philosophies of, psycho- of uh, science and how people were trying to look at scientific philosophy. And it seemed that it's not really clear how do we define science or how to make science and and how can we say it's objective when p- uh, clearly it's done by human beings who are subjective. And there was some very interesting work by feminists who were promoting the feminist theory in, in a way saying that we need multiple perspectives that we're actually showing that one of the things that makes science approach objectivity is having people from diverse backgrounds and allowing them to share their various viewpoints or to experience things in their various viewpoints. I think a concept called transformative interrogation, something like that, where what happens is if we're all sharing our ideas and we have people from different perspectives, it is more likely to make it that we will have closer to objectivity or we're less likely to have biases have a a negative impact. And so the feminists, essentially, in a way, their argument was being presented by showing how when scientists was essentially, or the field of science mostly was white males, they were people who, of course, had a certain perspective. And so as we broaden the perspectives include not just course, men and women, but then people of different racial backgrounds, people who are even, you know, the book of the week for this week is going to be about people with disabilities, people who even are, uh, who have different levels of ability or disability, um, religious background, age, whatever it might be, having a more diverse field of scientists or people who are looking at a certain issue makes it less likely for the biases to remain big and to remain unseen. And i thought that was very interesting and so there was a work of i think it was sarah harding and helen longino i'm not sure if i'm saying that right l-o-n-g-i-n-o um, whose work seemed very fascinating to me i even looked it up oftentimes when i'm reading one of the books of the week it'll make me want to look at the work of another author or another um, writer and so i did look at some of her work maybe i will read one of her books helen longino but It was very interesting showing that one of the things that makes science more trustworthy is having a diversity of individuals who are scientists who are looking at the different issues because anytime we get too uh, insulated as a group we can lose various perspectives and we don't see our own blind spots so we can imagine if we're all looking at something we're all standing in the same place we're all going to see it the same way with the same biases. But then if we have someone on the other side looking or from another direction or from below or from above, we'll see more aspects of that. And we won't be so biased in how we see things. So in science, that same type of principle applies. The more perspectives we have, the better. And later in the show, I might talk about diversity some more because it's one of those words or concepts that gets thrown around a lot and just, in a way, presented as, you know, this is good. Diversity is good, and look how good we are because we are diverse, and sometimes companies, corporations, um, you know, the, the movie industry, various things will use diversity in an empty way, just saying, look how woke we are, look how progressive we are, that we have diversity. And I'm not saying, of course, that's bad. What can be bad is we have to look at the intention. If the intention is just to come across a certain way, that's not good. But if the intention is recognizing there is benefits, there are benefits to diversity that actually reflect benefits in the, whatever is being produced, whether it's science and scientific knowledge, or if we're talking about the arts, or if we're talking about a business, we see that diversity actually improves what is being done. So it's not just, well, this is like a quote unquote diversity hire. We're going to let this person of color or this woman be part of this whatever it is, this, you know, board of directors or a group of people who are working on something, it's actually because it's going to add a beneficial component to what's going on. So I thought that was quite fascinating that one of the things that makes it that science can be trusted more is having diversity in the individuals, which also means there has to be communication. And so having scientific societies and conferences Uh, peer-reviewed journals where people are sharing various viewpoints that get to get evaluated by different people and people can give their comments. That is very important. So she gets into some of these various concepts of science. I also really liked uh, she mentioned humility as something that's important for scientists. So yes, we want to trust scientists. We want them to have Uh, We give confidence in what they're doing, but scientists must always, as all of us, have humility in the work they're doing. As much as they might have a certain state of affairs, they know they're not at the absolute truth. It's the best maybe that we can understand it at this time, but there is some humility there, and that humility is also within the community and individuals themselves, that scientists can start to, of course, get a big ego. They can get attached to... um, their name being famous or their theory, let's say, being famous. So if someone is, uh, you know, has a theory named after them, of course, that feels good. If someone else introduces new data that might question their theory, we can understand they might have a reaction towards that. And so having that humility is easier said than done, both as a scientific community, but also as individuals. But I thought it was important and interesting that she included that as one of her factors of looking at uh, what can, you know, help make sure science is, is meeting its aims or its objectives of being objective in finding the truth. And so, uh, as I mentioned, what I thought was also a a good sign or in a way, um, consistent with the type of thinking that science needs to be evaluated and looked at by different perspectives. The first part of the book was written by Naomi Oreskes herself, the author of the book. The book is again, why trust science, but then there was, I think three or four chapters from different authors, um, some written by two, two scientists uh, challenging some of the things she brought up. And so I thought that was interesting. And then she ends the book with a rebuttal or a reply to the, the issues or the questions, comments that they brought up. And so that itself is reflective of this scientific process or how science should be, is that you don't just present your answer as truth. You present something, it gets uh, evaluated by others. They can give comments, they can disagree, they can share why they disagree, and then you can, of course, respond as well. But it's this ongoing discussion that is going on. It's not just this set thing. There isn't dogma. That this is the truth and that's another way that i think scientists must be uh, humble or reflect that humility is that even if something it seems to be very true even if it gets a lot of attention from your peers there has to still be this openness to evaluate is it gonna is it true is there a better way of explaining what's going on is there data that might disagree with this theory or this way of of looking at the knowledge and so this book itself had that where a few scientists shared some of their thoughts uh, on what she was saying, um, which was interesting to hearing some of their rebuttals to what you're saying or their replies to what she was saying, um, w- which included things like, uh, you know, the importance of showing people the value of science by showing them how practical it is in their lives. Right now I'm talking into this microphone and if you're hearing me, um, there's so many different elements and don't, so many different fields of science that are being used just for you to hear me or if you're watching me on Instagram Live, even more, some different ones that are being used there. So that author was in a way arguing or promoting this idea that we should, in helping to garner the trust of the general public to the scientific community and to science in general, we should be making it more clear to them how much technology or how much science is being used in their everyday lives that they, of course, trust. When you turn on your phone, you, of course, expect it to work and expected to do certain things and so in a way you're taking for given the scientific advancements that have been made. And That chapter made an interesting point showing this kind of dichotomy that has been created between uh, science and technology which as that author explained that I could find the name of the author I don't know it off the top of my head but it's in this uh, book Why I Trust Science was partially related this uh, distinction between science and technology because of Um, technology being associated with being used for defense and things like weapons and negative things like the atomic bomb. So in a way, it became the application of science in some ways, but it seemed like science tried to get away from technology when really, I mean, they're essentially one and the same, um, but just different maybe ways of looking at or different applications. So she thought that was important to maybe bridge that gap between science and technology and bring them back so i I want to conclude this segment but it was a very interesting book again why trust science and i will give this last analogy you know people will say um, science how do we know they're right and you know there's no way to say we know for sure they're right but i think what we hopefully can do is we recognize these are individuals who are devoted to working on something and who create a community who are constantly trying to learn from each other learn about how they're doing things that are right or wrong improve on themselves that's how science becomes self-correcting is if there is this open dialogue and discourse between the scientists that are involved Um, but if it is the best that we got that's that's all we can do is go with that so uh, the analogy i use is if you're on a plane and the pilot has a heart attack and they come into the cabin and say who can fly this plane Uh, If there's someone who has the most experience flying, even if they're not the best pilot in the world, you would probably say, let's have him or her fly the plane. That's our best bet of surviving. And so very often when it comes to what the scientists are telling us, we can't say for sure they're always gonna be right, but we should think that they probably have the best estimation of the reality, the best understanding of the reality, even if it's not the absolute truth, it's the best that we have at this time. And it would be negligent for us to ignore what they're talking about. For example, when it comes to climate science and how easy it is for some people to just try to introduce doubt by saying, oh, look, we found one scientist maybe saying this, or there's been some funded research showing this has happened. Um, It's unfortunate, but it's very easy for people to obscure the truth because by saying, well, we know, we don't know if they're right because they've been wrong before. And look, here's maybe something that shows we can't be certain they're right. So we'll never know that they're 100% correct, but I think it makes sense to have faith in the scientific community and the scientific communities that these are the individuals and this is the community, not just individuals who are giving us the truth, but the community as a whole can help us to better understand or give us the best understanding of our world or a certain issue at hand. And so, of course, the book gets into much more detail about arguments like this, but I highly recommend you take a look at Why Trust Science by by Naomi Oreskes. Let's go to our first commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dralakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, Why Trust Science by Naomi Oreskes. Great book. Uh, Highly recommend it. Uh, You know, this year I've actually, I was thinking about it. I do my top 10 books of the week Uh, uh, for the end of the year and already this year I've read so many good ones I don't think I'm going to be able to pick just 10 because so many of them have been very impactful on me and I've gone a lot out of so this was another great book um, that I got to read in this segment I wanted to talk about the concept of diversity which I talked about a few minutes in the previous segment we wanted to carry carry it into this segment because of how important I think it is As I mentioned in the book, um, Dr. Oreskes talks about how one of the things that makes science work or work better is to have diversity, to have people with different perspectives. And when we're too insulated, we don't actually progress and we are very uh, unlikely to reduce the biases that we have. So in science, you're sharing the work of some feminist scholars talked about how if we have more diversity we're likely to reduce the bias that is there and if we don't have diversity the biases are likely to be there more strongly so we can't deny that human beings have biases we all do even in ways we don't realize and so when you're surrounded by people that see the world the way that you do and and think like you do you're unlikely to recognize the biases you have but you introduce something new and you're likely to get a new perspective, which shakes things up, but can lead to progress. And so when I say it shakes things up, there's a good feeling of everyone thinking the same way. This is why we, uh, you know, we don't like conflict. It's very easy to avoid conflict if everyone thinks the same thing. I want this, or we all want this, good. I see it this way, we all see it this way, good. And so very often in a, in a group, we have dynamics, Even we, uh, there's something called groupthink, which is more specific to certain situations, but still this idea that when a group is in trying to make um, peace and order and trying to just keep everything uh, smooth, we're more likely to miss important errors that are going on. or We might not realize that we're seeing things in a biased way. But when you bring someone new into the situation, it can hopefully and it can be helpful in, in shifting that. So when we talk about diversity, as I mentioned in the previous segment, such a big phrase or concept right now, improving or increasing diversity, um, looking at the diversity of, in Hollywood, looking at diversity in the tech industry. And for a lot of people, they hear diversity and what they hear is forcing people to hire individuals of a certain background or making things unfair to favor certain groups of people. Um, and they, so they think it's just kind of a politically correct type of a thing. It's not a real thing. It's just a fake kind of thing to make people feel good to say, oh, look how we're, you know, uh, being diverse. Look how we're including more people, but this is not the real truth. Uh, and I know I talked about in the first segment being careful of using truth as a ta- capital T, but as far as a truth in our understanding, where diversity actually leads to improvements. I was mentioning it before, but even if we look at something like the arts, if you look at advancement in art, it generally happens when you have a mixing of different cultures coming together. Very often we've seen this in history. When you have a blend uh, of different arts that come together. Someone goes, even travels somewhere and is influenced by the work of those people, comes back, brings that perspective into their own and, and creates something that's new in the sense that it hasn't been brought together, but nothing about it is new. And, and that's kind of the truth of the world is that even if someone is a great thinker or a great artist, great scientist, they might come up with what we think of as a new uh, theory or a new understanding, but really it's more of a blend of what already existed. So there's nothing really new under the sun as the saying goes. But when we combine new ideas, this is what it creativity really is. It's not something where you create something that really never existed, but you're blending things together that existed, maybe in a new way. If someone creates a new song, they're not making new notes but they might make a a new combination of notes, which also probably is likely influenced by other combinations of notes, but maybe they've added some variation on it. But it's not that they've created something that's totally brand new. But what can be helpful is when they have different perspectives, they can create something that would be new to us because we haven't ever experienced that combination of things before. So diversity isn't just something nice to do diversity isn't something that just feels good or we can tell ourselves we're good people because we do it. Having diversity in different aspects of life actually helps create better results. If you're in government and you only have one group of people that have the power, this is going to affect things in multiple ways. One is, of course, those people are more likely to be biased to help people like them. That's always happened. So if we look at American history, when white males had all the power, uh, surprise, surprise, all of the laws benefited white males, or very often we would see that bias. So one is it's more likely to benefit that group. And then also when you have people with diverse backgrounds or diverse perspectives, you, those new perspectives will help them see things in a different way. So it's more likely to have laws that represent everyone. This is why we have so many great ideals in the United States, um, of the people, for the people, by the people. It's that it's in, it's elected by the people. It's part of the people that have the power. It's not some different group. And they, they are there for all the people as well. But unfortunately, that ideal hasn't always been met in the United States and around the world, because when it would say for the people, people included some people or some groups and very clearly excluded some groups of people to the detriment of everyone. So if we look at, for example, government. When we have men and women, both in government, that benefits everyone. Having that balance, having those different perspectives benefits people. I was talking to someone earlier today and we're saying how New Zealand has done really well with the coronavirus and they said, you know they have a female president, and we kind of, you know, both agreed and laughed about that. But uh, there is some truth to that. That there is, it's better to have a balance of things. Now, I don't want to necessarily say women leaders are definitely better than male leaders either, but I definitely believe it's very clear that if we only include some people, this is a problem. We all pay the price when different perspectives. Uh, are not included. So the ideas are better. And of course, representation matters as well, too. When you see, you know, it is like this thing of, oh, now they have a, a superhero with this nationality or this ethnic background, and we think it's kind of who cares. But it does have an impact on individuals, on children, but also adults, of seeing themselves represented as being part of the community. When we look at history and for much of history in the film industry, white males, especially with white people, were seen as the the protagonists, were seen as the good guys, and everyone else was not included or would be the bad guys. This, of course, has an effect of how people feel about the different groups. Art imitates life and life imitates art. It's a very dynamic process. So if you have something in the arts, yes, it does represent what life is like, but it's also going to affect how people feel about themselves and how people uh, feel about different groups of individuals so even for example as a Middle Eastern individual myself, if you look at movies how what's the most common thing that Middle Eastern people are in the movies is usually terrorists or something negative right And so we might say who cares but of course this has an impact on people maybe myself who's a Middle Eastern individual, I know that there's Middle Eastern people who are you know just like every other Group, good, bad, moral, immoral, and everything in between. But someone who doesn't know, looks at that, and all they know about Middle Eastern individuals is, oh, they're terrorists. They're all bad people. They hate America, or they hate the world, or they hate our freedoms, or whatever types of things they might think about them. But until we have the diversity of actually representing them, uh, individuals like Middle Eastern people on the screen as a variety of characters, that can have an effect. Or until we do that, people won't be able to see or recognize that diversity. So I know that diversity is a cliched term. It's a term that's definitely overused and some people use it for the wrong reasons. Some companies are saying, Oh, look, we've used an Asian model now because look how good we are. And I don't think that's a a bad thing, but if we look at their motivation, if it's just purely commercial or to come off a certain way, that doesn't really work. And also, when we look at these types of issues, when we talk about people being hired into, let's say, okay, they say, let's include our diversity, so we have now one black person working here. What we usually find is because the culture of that community is racist or biased in these certain ways, that individual has a bad experience for multiple reasons, including one, people think, well, they were just a diversity hire, so we brought them on because of that and they don't deserve to be here. And two, they're going to feel excluded in a lot of ways. So true diversity doesn't just mean we bring a token person and include them into this group or into this, you know society or whatever it might be. It means truly changing our mindset to recognize that sometimes it's biased towards favoring certain groups or certain types of individuals. And we have to be very mindful of that. And again, we don't increase diversity just to be nice or because inclusion sounds cool. We increase diversity because it actually creates better results. When you have a diverse sales team coming up with the sales pitch, they come up with something better than when you have just certain uh, one group of people involved. Uh, So diversity is about uh, improving the results, as is the case in science, as was very well presented in this book by Naomi Oreskes, Why Trust Science. But as she even mentioned in the book, research from um, the commercial world and also government shows us that diversity is beneficial as well. And so this means also as an individual, as I was mentioning before, conflict is tough. It's nice to just feel secure in our bubble of this is what I think, this is what I believe, and it's right. I don't, you know, I, I already know the truth. why would I have to listen to anything else? We don't like to be wrong. And not only not only do we not like to be wrong, we also don't like to even be uncertain. We don't want to feel like we're not sure. We say, no, I know this candidate is bad and this candidate is good. And so I don't even have to hear anything else. Or if I hear anything else, I already have it in the lens of this person is bad or this person is good. But if we truly want to have that humility I was talking about in the last segment, we have to recognize that we are not always right. Of course, we're not. We always can grow and understand more. Even we can understand more about our own position by hearing the other side and unfortunately that's something that we're seeing very strongly right now is the polarization of individuals we don't want to be exposed to a diversity of ideas when it comes to political issues i'm right you are wrong i'm moral you're immoral uh, i'm good you're bad and that's it end of story but this is a very sad state of affairs where it's unfortunately leading to people becoming more extreme in their views believing things that aren't true because we have to so hard cling on to what we already believe and want to know. And unfortunately, we um, we what we experience is that we become further apart rather than coming together. And we become further apart from understanding the truth or of what's really going on. But let's go to a commercial break, the last one for the show. Uh, after the break, I'll, I'll talk to uh, maybe some of the people online, if they have any questions, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulac. We will be right back. Welcome back. So in the last segment, I was talking about um, diversity and someone asked a question about can the gender of a scientist affect the science that they do. That was asked on the Instagram live. And I absolutely think that it can and does. And history has shown us that. I also actually gave the the book title um, Inferior by Angela Saini during the commercial break, which does a great job looking at the history of science, comparing men and women. Um, and showing that women, as the title of the book implies, are inferior to men. So we have male scientists, and probably mostly or all white male scientists, and that's why actually I should mention that. Uh, Angela Saini, it was another book of the week I did called Superior, looking at the return of race science. And so, of course, if you have white male scientists, how they're very likely to find that Uh, people who are black or people of color are inferior and that the whites are superior. And we've seen that throughout history as well. But so that book inferior that you wrote um, and the one I read first was looking at this history of science. And so, you know, the book I read that I talked about today is called why trust science. And so we do want to trust science, but we also, as the book even implies, don't blindly trust science. And there's ways that we want to evaluate science itself to see how, good the science is and a lot of these things can feel circular and they even are I'll be honest it's hard to to make sense of it in a way but there's ways we can look at the science to see um, how good it is and how biased or unbiased it is so when you have a bunch of male scientists who already assume as was kind of assumed at that time and still is for some people that men are superior to women, and now you say, study the world, they're gonna view the world through that lens. And so an example I use for this is if you're looking at data or looking at the world, when you look at bias, if you're playing cards and a standard deck of cards has 52 cards in it. And so if we're gonna play, sometimes you take, you know, if you're at someone's house, they take out the deck of cards and they say, hey, count the cards to make sure it's a full deck or has the right amount of cards. If you count the cards and you get to 52, you think, okay, we're good to go. Let's play. But usually if you count the cards and you get to 51 or 53, you think, wait, and you usually will recount to see, "What well, was I really right that I got it? Or maybe I miscounted. So we see that when we get our expected result, we take it as truth and we think some, You know, everything's good. But when we get something we don't expect, which we already have, you know, we have our biases, then we think something was wrong and we try to find a way to fix it or make it right. We might count it again and if we get 51 again, we're like, oh, it looks like it's 51. But just that gives you an idea of how our biases can affect looking for the quote-unquote truth. Because you're thinking, well, I'm just counting. So if I'm counting something, it shouldn't make a difference what my biases are. But clearly, when we have a bias, It impacts the way we look at what's happening. And so this is another way where humility or understanding science is important, that yes, we're looking for the truth, but it doesn't mean there is some perfect or exact truth or that we can objectively find the truth in one way. And this is why I was saying in the first segment how uh, there isn't really, and she mentions it in the book very clearly, that there isn't one scientific method or even what we considered quote-unquote good science has changed over time. Before, maybe you just, let's say, in medical field, you'd have the doctors tell you how the patients are doing based on the medicine, and, you know, that was it. We'd say, oh, this medicine works or it doesn't work. And then we realized, oh, you know what? There's things like the placebo effect. So just by telling someone you're going to give them medicine, they tend to feel better or they tend to get better, even if you give them nothing or a sugar pill. And so, okay, we have to compare, um, you know, people who are just taking a placebo to people who are taking uh, the medicine. And so, you know, we, we thought we figured it out then. And I don't know the exact history. This is maybe not how it went. But then we realized, well, if the doctors know which people got the medicines and which ones didn't, This is, of course, going to affect the way they evaluate the patients. If you have a patient coming in, you're like, oh, she got the medicine. They're probably going to be doing much better. Uh, Then you will more than likely look for them doing better. Oh, look, she's coughing less, I think, and she's doing better. And then if you know you gave the the non-medication to someone else, you expect them to not get as good. So that's going to affect things. Even more so, let's say, if you've developed this medicine and you want it to be successful both to make money, to become famous, of course, that's going to affect the way that you evaluate them. So then we have to do things like double blind studies where even the, the, the patient doesn't know if they've got the medication or not, and the doctors and the people evaluating don't know who got the medication or not. So we can see what we thought was good science has evolved. There isn't one scientific method and even that gets refined. There's ways that bias exists now in science that we probably don't even realize exists or we're not sure how to um, address. And so when the question comes up of can being a male or female scientist affect you, it can, and it's important to be aware of who you are when you are looking at information, when you're trying to understand something. So I do try to keep this in mind that I am a male Iranian American and I have different characteristics that are going to affect the way that I look at things, even the way I look at my clients. If you are an Iranian male who's born into a very male patriarchal society, you could have a very different view of the same behavior done by a female as someone who is, let's say, American born, because you have certain biases culturally in you that will affect the way that you view someone. Um, So I think it does depend on what you're looking at, of course, how the impact of, let's say, something like gender might play a part. Maybe if you're looking at chemistry, it might be less of an impact. But even still, there might be ways that you're not aware of that could affect uh, how you see things. So to answer that question of does it make a difference that someone is uh, male or female as a scientist, it, in a way the answer is it depends, but that we don't want to say it's definitely a no. You don't want to just say, well, does it doesn't make a difference. And that's something that I liked about the book is that it was saying that it's not that, okay, because we're doing science uh, nothing matters anymore because science is objective, science is self-correcting, uh, the scientific method is this you know a beautiful, pure thing that means that no one can mess it up. Again, we are human beings doing these actions. So we know that it always has some level of subjectivity in it, even if we think it's purely objective. There is something subjective about it once I start to evaluate the things. And that's something that's very important for us to be aware of as individuals in our own lives, because in a way we're all scientists in our own lives trying to understand the world, but also it's scientists that they have to make sure They are paying attention to different ways that they might be biased um, in finding the information that they're finding, in studying things the way that they study. And as a psychologist, I definitely think this is, in, in most ways, most important in the social sciences, and especially in psychology. We can see how at certain periods of time, for example, homosexuality was viewed as a mental illness, and just a few decades ago. That changed. So at that time, it was kind of like the truth of psychology that this is a mental illness. So someone could say this individual is mentally ill and we shouldn't trust him or her for whatever reason. And that's what the U.S. government did with the military, that there was various reasons why they said it was what they were doing but that was what they they had intended and so as a mental health professional and someone who's trying to understand people this is another reason why we try to suspend judgment and have a non-judgmental stance is because what's right or wrong is not something black or white or very clear and why we have to be aware of things like cultural impacts you know i work with a lot of iranian families and there's things that iranian families do that in another family would be unheard of or unacceptable. While at the same time, what I think is very interesting, recognizing that cultural sensitivity doesn't mean everything is okay. Uh, There isn't this cultural relativism that no matter what you're doing, it doesn't matter. And this is where we get into a lot of gray areas. But if I see something in the Iranian community that seems to hurt individuals, I think it's up to me and my duty to bring this up this awareness even when it comes to something as i've been talking about the men and women and their experiences if women are held back in iranian society i have this value that i think that when any group is held back it's unfair to those individuals and it also is unfair to all of society and holds all of society back when we don't let for example women have equal rights when you don't allow women to be in various fields of study in various, um, types of professions. We all pay a price and it's unfair to that group. So one could say, well, you know, Iranian society has always been this way, or Iranian culture is patriarchal. We think that the woman should be this way. The men should be this way. And so with respect, I think I can disagree with that and introduce why I think this is harmful. And why I think it would be good for us to change this aspect of our society or of our culture doesn't mean that we have to give up all of our ways of thinking or all of our ways of being, which is sometimes what people feel, that if we're changing one aspect of our culture, it means we have to give it all up, our whole identity, who we are. But I think we do have to look at our own cultures and all cultures with this openness, of not just saying, because it's cultural, it's okay. Because it's part of the tradition, it's okay. We do want to have respect for that and not just say, I don't care what your traditions are. I'm going to tell you what to do and who to be because history is full of examples of people not respecting other people's cultures when they actually should have. But we do want to look at ourselves and our own cultures with this type of openness, as open as we can be. And this is where it is challenging because when you're in a culture, It's hard for you to be objective about it. And this is where someone from the outside can tell you some things because they can see it in a different way. Yet another reason why it's so important for us to have an exchange of ideas for people to talk to each other, to communicate. You go somewhere and you say, oh, I always thought it had to be this way, that women had to have these rules, men had to have these rules." I see in this society, they work just fine with more equality. Is that something I want? And hopefully this is something we're seeing in the world, and at some level we are, that the different cultures are learning from each other. I think all cultures have beautiful, wonderful parts, and all cultures also have some unhealthy parts as well. Especially unhealthy in that they developed in a different time and place than what we're living in now, and they're not necessary, and they're hurting certain parts uh of the community or certain individuals are all individuals and so i think and i hope we're moving more towards a world culture where it doesn't mean you have to give up who you are completely but that as we learn more from each other as human beings we can see how we can incorporate and and way acculturate in this way different aspects of different cultures to create a more healthy world culture or each culture itself can be positively affected by different cultures to become healthier for itself, for its individuals and society at large. So the more we interact in an open way, the more there's this exchange of ideas, exchange of information, and the more we can evaluate ourselves, who we are and who we want to be, and hopefully move towards a healthier world culture. And I know this uh, in a way veered away from this question of, uh, does male or female make a difference in, in being a scientist? I think absolutely it can, doesn't mean it necessarily does but we always want to be aware of who we are and how that's going to bias the way we see the world that does bring us to the end of tonight's show thank you to everyone who's been listening and also tuning in on instagram live and as always thank you to amir here in the studio you've been listening to in session with dr fadid alakwi have a wonderful night